Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Loeb. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Loeb is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. Well, I mentioned last week that we are starting a new series through the book of 1 Peter. So go ahead and grab a Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, and in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you will find that on page 1014. And as you're turning there, people usually are interested to know the reason behind my choice of a particular book, and there are three reasons in no particular order, why I think it's important for us to study 1 Peter together. Uh, first of all, Peter says some hard things, uh, some challenging things that we might uh, rather not hear in our, our natural uh, sinfulness, some challenging topics. But in my experience, it's usually the areas that we would rather avoid that tend to make the biggest difference in our lives. And so it's going to be good for us to follow Peter uh, to places where we might not normally choose to go on our own. Secondly, we've just seen in our study through Luke uh, that Jesus explains that all of Scripture testifies to who he is and what he has done. And Peter is going to bring that out over and over again. There is a ton of Old Testament in 1 Peter. And so it's going to be interesting for us to, to see that biblical theology, that story of the whole Bible, uh, to play out and, and think, think more about the significance uh, that it has for our lives today. And then finally, 1 Peter teaches us how to suffer as Christians, uh, whether that be because of persecution for our faith or simply the, the natural uh, difficulties that come with living in a broken world. Uh, on the one hand, life is hard. We have probably all lived long enough to, to find that out. We get sick. Our plans fall through in a particular way. Uh, we experience loss. It doesn't matter who we are, all of us will experience suffering because this world has been broken by sin and it no longer works the way it was designed to. And on the other hand, Jesus has promised that being faithful to him will bring us into extra difficulty as we experience the rejection of this world that is opposed to him. And Peter addresses both of these realities. And since we are certainly going to endure natural suffering, and because our culture becomes increasingly antagonistic towards Christianity, it's important for us to understand how the Lord wants us to navigate those difficulties in a way that honors Him. And so those are some of the main themes that we're going to be looking at in 1 Peter. And before we get started, I will say up front, one of the difficult things about reading 1 Peter is that Peter has a tendency to write incredibly long sentences that do not come across super well into English, and he uses a ton of adjectives to describe things. And so that means we're going to have to slow down at times and perhaps be a bit more methodical uh, as we go through the book as, than we're used to. Uh, so be aware of that. But I'm excited for this new series. It should take us all the way through the summer. And so without further ado, let's get into 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, beginning in first one, verse 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, 
Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And so as we get started with the letter, Peter introduces himself as the author, as an apostle of Jesus Christ. As we saw in Luke, Peter was one of 12 men that Jesus chose to be an apostle. And and among other things, uh, that means that he was called to be an official representative, uh, a spokesman, a leader of the early church. Uh, Peter was given the authority to explain the gospel message and its implications for our lives. Uh, And so, among other things, it's always worth remembering that as an apostle, what Peter says, Jesus says. Uh, There's a tendency of of people today to try to pit the Gospels against other parts of the New Testament, but there's no conflict between them. What we're going to read in this letter is the Word of God, and as such, it is worthy of our attention, uh, of our embracing and acceptance, and ultimately, it's worthy of our obedience. Then in verse 2, we see that this letter is directed to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, the five locations referred to here are are different areas in the ancient region of Asia Minor, which is the modern-day country of Turkey. And so if you look up at our map on the screen, uh, you'll see that those are the areas on the right side. If you can make it out, they're, they're written in red rather than black. Uh, Those are the areas that this letter is being addressed to, and depending on when the letter was written, this would have included the churches in Ephesus, Galatia, Colossae, uh, and Antioch, among others, which we read about as we went through the book of Acts. Now, Peter identifies these these original readers as exiles who are living throughout these areas. Of course, an exile is someone who, for any number of, of various reasons, does not live in their native country. Uh, And life can be hard for exiles, right? They may not know the language, they have different customs and perspectives on life, uh, and they are often treated suspiciously and poorly by by those around them. And so the first question that we need to answer in this letter is, what is the dispersion that Peter is talking about here? Is this referring to an an official socio-political expulsion of certain of Christians from, from different areas of the Roman Empire into these particular areas? Or are Christians coming to these areas as they flee persecution on their own? Or might this just be a way of Peter referring to the general sense of, of, of out-of-placeness that Christians often experience uh, in this world? Well, scholars have, have argued for either or, or all of these options. And in my opinion, there's, there's not really a way of knowing for certain. The good news is that the specific answer doesn't really change the meaning of what Peter is saying here. All right, the bottom line is, is whoever these people are specifically and whatever their specific uh, situation is, these are people who are experiencing uh, a, a, a disconnect with, with the society that they live in. These are people who don't fit in with mainstream society in part because of their faith in Jesus. These are people who are experiencing relational, economic, and perhaps even physical opposition because of their commitment to Christ. Uh, For consequences for following Jesus in a world that is hostile toward him. 
And so their daily life is an experience of exile because this world is very clearly not their home. So Peter is writing this, this letter to a group of people who are, are spiritual, if not physical, exiles. But these aren't just any exiles, they are elect exiles. Right, now, when Peter uses the term elect, he's talking about those who God has chosen for himself. And a lot of times when people hear the word elect or, or chosen or predestined, they get real fidgety in their seats. What does he mean that, that God chose them? What, what are the implications that that has for, for our lives? In our day, election tends to be a topic uh, that is debated, often heatly, hotly uh, debated. But that was not the case in the ancient world. Right, you notice that Peter doesn't make any attempt to, to explain or, or debate what he's saying. He simply states it as a matter of fact. Right, in, the, in the Old Testament, out of all of the people in the world, God chose Israel, and, and he called them to be his people. And in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, God has chosen the church out of every nation, tribe, and tongue, and he has called those in the church to be his people. But then that leads me to another question, which is, why does election matter here? Right, why does election matter here? Why identify these people as elect? Why not call them saints or refer to them as churches, as most of the other letters in the New Testament do? I mean, obviously, it's, it's theologically true, but why does election matter here? I think we're going to see more of this as we go forward, but right here at the beginning, we have an audience, a group of original recipients who live in a constant state of feeling rejected, harassed, oppressed, people who are, are exposed to danger, uh, who, who are insecure, people whose faith may be wavering under the pressure. And so I think that Peter here, right off the bat, wants to reorient their minds to where they stand with God, which is infinitely more important than what anybody else thinks about them or, or how anybody else treats them. Right, we're going to come back to this again, but, but no matter where we are, no matter what we are experiencing in life, what God thinks about us is all that's going to matter in the end. And, and having that perspective is going to be vital if we want to persevere in our faith through all the ups and downs uh, of, of this life. Peter doesn't offer election as a source of controversy among his people. He offers election as a source of comfort for his people. Then in verse 2, Peter further describes their identity as elect exiles with a, with a string of prepositional phrases. All right, these people are who they are, first of all, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, secondly, in the sanctification of the Spirit, and then finally, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. And so first of all, they are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, God's foreknowledge doesn't simply refer to the fact that he knows things ahead of time, although that is certainly true. More specifically, across the Bible, it refers to his plan before the foundation of the world, uh, primarily to save his people. Right? It's not just that God knows what's going to happen in the future. It's that God, as, as Paul wrote to the Ephesians, is the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You see, God determined before there was time 
that he would save his people through Jesus, and it is according to that foreknowledge that Peter's recipients are elect exiles. Secondly, their identity is established in the sanctification of the Spirit. We've seen before that sanctification is is a term that refers to being set apart and, and to be devoted to God's purposes. And while most of the time we think of sanctification in terms of of growing spiritually little by little, day after day, uh, as we battle sin and pursue godliness in our lives, Paul also refers to sanctification as something that has happened, and that's the sense that Peter is using it here. We have been set apart from the world for God's purposes by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Now we belong to God, and we are called to devote our lives to serving his purposes. And in many ways, as we're going to see as we go throughout this letter, it is our sanctification, our being set apart for God, that that brings us our experience as exiles, because our identity in Christ causes friction as we live out our new life against the values of this world. And then finally, we see that these recipients are elect exiles for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, that last part of the statement may sound kind of weird to us. What does it mean to be sprinkled with his blood? Uh, But this this expression has its basis in the Old Testament. And in, in Exodus 24, Moses calls for the people to commit to obeying the Lord. And when they do that, he he sprinkles them with the blood of the sacrifice that has just been offered to establish the old covenant. And he says to them, This is the blood of the covenant. Of course, we just recently saw that at the Last Supper, Jesus takes the cup and he explains to his disciples that this cup is the new covenant in his blood, right? Jesus' sacrifice is the sacrifice that establishes the new covenant. And so we see here that in in a a much more profound way, if if not literal, uh, that those who are in Christ, those who have believed the gospel, have had the blood of Christ applied to them as they are brought into the new covenant, by believing the gospel message. And now we are called to live our lives in obedience to Jesus' commands, which we find throughout the rest of the New Testament. And so here in this first section, Peter gives credit to God the Father in foreknowledge, the Holy Spirit in sanctification, and for obedience to Jesus and sprinkling with his blood, uh, gives credit to the Father, Son, and Spirit for our salvation, having affirmed God's triune work in making us his new covenant people, Peter offers a blessing at the end of verse 2 for God's grace and peace to be multiplied to his readers, for them to experience it more and more. Now Peter's going to get into the body of his letter as we pick up again beginning in verse 3. He writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so as you pick up again here in verse 3, Peter begins the, the letter proper by praising God for what he has done for us. And specifically, he says that he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now, when it comes to being born again, you may remember Jesus' words to Nicodemus when he told them 
that, that unless a person is born again, they cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. As we are, we are spiritually dead in our natural sinfulness. And so we need to be reborn and be given new life spiritually. And on the one hand, this isn't something that we deserve because our our rebellion against God deserves to be judged. And on the other hand, it's not something that we can do for ourselves. We are unable to do anything to make ourselves right with God. But Peter here says that because or according to his great mercy... God intervened by sending Jesus to pay our moral debt for us, and through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, he gives us new spiritual life with hearts that love him and seek to follow him. And we see that in conversion, God makes us new creations. But not only has God caused us to be reborn, we also see here that this new birth leads to a living hope. Now, as we've said before, hope from a biblical perspective, does not simply mean wishful thinking, like saying, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. No, hope from a biblical perspective is a confident expectation that is rooted in God's promises. We have hope and confidence that God will do what he says he will do. And Peter says that this hope is living, which means that it is always active. It is always relevant no matter what situation we find ourselves in. And so as we go through life, we should be characterized by a confidence that God is going to to prove his word true every time. It may not be today, and it may not be tomorrow, but eventually God will always do what he says he will do. And I want to tell you, friends, that, that people who have that kind of hope, you can't do anything with them. You can't intimidate them. You can't beat them enough. The trials of this life can't defeat them. People who are utterly convinced that the God of the universe loves them and is working out all things for their good, they, ha- they are invincible. Right? You can kill them, but you can't stop them. And, and Peter wants his readers, and, by, and us by extension, to have that kind of living hope as we go through this world. And just quickly, at the end of verse 4, We see that this hope comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As we saw over the the last few weeks, the resurrection of Jesus is what demonstrated that his sacrifice for sin had been accepted, that, that it was effective. And the point here is that if Jesus can defeat death itself, there is nothing that he cannot do. And so we trust that as we go through life, we can have confident expectation that whatever Jesus has said he will do, he will do. We have a living hope. But not only this, in verse 4, we see that we've also been born again to an inheritance, right? As God's children, we are entitled to everything that he has for us. We are privileged to receive an inheritance for him. And Peter describes this inheritance as imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's, It's really hard for us to comprehend this, because in our experience, everything in the world breaks down over time. Right? If you go to a junkyard, you will find a bunch of cars that used to be state-of-the-art, you know, status symbols. But now they're just a heap of metal piled up for someone to come get scrap from. Right? If, you, if you have the opportunity to, to see ancient artifacts in a museum, well, they may have survived over the centuries to still be here today, 
but, but uh, for, for certain, they are, are nowhere nearly as beautiful or as functional as they were originally. They have corroded and faded over time. But that is not true with our salvation and the benefits that it brings. Peter is implying here that, that 100 million years into eternity, our salvation will be just as glorious as it was on day one. It's, it's glorious beyond our ability to understand. But not only is our salvation eternally glorious, we also see that it is 100% secure. Peter says at the end of, of verse 4 into verse 5 that it is being kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So let's say that you got a phone call from a bank that, that informed you that you had just inherited a million dollars from a relative you didn't even know that you had. Well, that would be awesome. Uh, and, and perhaps there, there's still some paperwork that needs to be filed. Uh, there's, there's time for the system to process everything. But, but in one month, this, this inheritance is going to be yours. That would be amazing. That would be awesome. And yet, there are still two different ways that you might not get to experience this inheritance. On the one hand, something could happen to the money. On the other hand, something could happen to you. All right, so, so perhaps the money gets stolen. Well, in that case, you'd no longer have an inheritance to enjoy. Or perhaps you walk outside and get hit by a bus and die, and then you won't be around to experience and enjoy this inheritance. All right? Or, or, <clears throat> that would be sad, to be sure. But the good news is that we don't have to worry about this with our spiritual inheritance. Peter says that our inheritance is being kept in heaven and that we are being guarded by God's power through faith. We see this is, this is 100% foolproof. If we are in Christ, we can have total confidence that we will get to heaven and that our inheritance will be there in total when we do. And, and there's nothing that Satan or this world or even we ourselves can do to mess it up. We're reminded here that ultimately our salvation is secure, not because we are able to hold on to God, but because God is able to hold on to us. And so from beginning to end, our salvation is the glorious work of a glorious God. He planned it, he has caused it, and he will sustain it all the way until it is revealed on the last day. So in our passage this morning, Peter introduces his letter to a, to a number of churches who were scattered throughout the ancient region of Asia Minor who are experiencing the hard realities of trying to follow Jesus in a broken world. And right off the bat, he acknowledges their circumstances, but then he redirects their focus away from their temporary earthly circumstances and situation and onto their eternal spiritual reality. And he calls them to praise God for what he has done for them. Right, that the only proper response to our salvation is to praise God. And it's important for us to grasp this for ourselves, because while we do live in a very different time, in a very different place than Peter's first readers, we deal with the difficult stuff of life just like they did. Right? Nobody gets out of this life unscarred. And so... Not only that, but, but we are increasingly seeing Christian beliefs marginalized in our culture, not just because maybe a lot of people disagree with them, but because they're actually coming to be characterized as evil, 
as, as hateful, oppressive, as, as ideas that are dangerous and should not be welcome in society. And if that trajectory continues, uh, then we could well find ourselves in some uncomfortable situations in the, the near-distant future. And of course, as always, I don't say that to be alarmist. It's just what I see, and it's what I think a lot of people see. Right? Jesus said this would happen, and there was no exception clause given for us. And so, uh, here in this, uh, in, as that happens, there, there, are, there are two different approaches, common approaches, in the face of opposition. Right, there, there are two temptations. One is to compromise our, our faith, to go along, to get along, and, and to uh, be unfaithful. And the other is to, is to get angry about the way the world is changing and, and try to fight back. Right, but faithfulness to Jesus rejects both of those approaches, and he calls us uh, to do something different, which we're going to see more of as we go through this letter. But right here in this opening passage, Peter encourages us so that we can have a joyful confidence in the Lord, no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in, as we remain faithful to Jesus, regardless of the consequences. Church, I want you to think about this. Okay, if every single thing in your life goes wrong, you have a living hope that your future is indescribably bright. If every single person in the world rejects us, the, the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God of the universe has chosen us. Right? If, if, if everything that we have is lost or gets taken from us through Jesus, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, that is be, being kept for us. The good news of this first paragraph of 1 Peter is that we cannot lose in the end. And this, this truth of what God has done for us should be the foundational reality of our lives. And I don't mean that just in theory, right? Because like I know that what God thinks and, and has done is the most important. But I'm, I'm talking about in reality, right? This truth should ground us. It should sustain us. And it should inspire us to live our lives for God's glory every day and every way as, as he leads us through the ups and downs of this life. So this morning, let's praise God for the incredible salvation he has provided for us. Let's pray together.